Hello and welcome to 128 Sterling, a new podcast series produced for the House of Anansi that uses conversations with writers to open windows upon the world. Just to let you know, I don't want to make the unsuspecting listener uncomfortable, but there's a little coarse language and, about 20 minutes in, a sex scene in this week's episode, How Many People Does a Writer Have to Know? On we go. A lot of books that I've been influenced by are about the idea of a homecoming. It's a very interesting way into the human psyche, the whole idea of how place defines who we are. I find people are so profoundly impacted on the place where they came into awareness of themselves and the world around them, where they get fucked up <laughs> and then have to go back to get unfucked up. <laughs> so. About 10 years ago now, and time passes, I travelled to Nova Scotia for a chat with author Christy Ann Conlin for a book I was writing about Canada that used storytelling as a way in. Her debut novel, Heave, featured the restless Serafina, an Amy Winehouse of the Annapolis Valley who'd returned to Nova Scotia from travels in Canada and abroad and stays in rehab here and there for the reckoning that only home can offer. Like Serafina, author Christy had known a lack from her own time away, in Vancouver, just before we spoke. I loved living in Vancouver, but one of the things that I missed acutely about home when I was out there was the sense of history here and the connection people do seem to have to their ancestors. I know that sounds hokey, but you're aware of where you came from. And when I was in Vancouver, I mean, nobody was from there, and it drove me crazy. I'm used to people living in houses that they know stories have been handed down about how they were built. Last names have been in the same community for generations. I really miss that about here. I wonder if Christiane had an inkling then that her next work, The Memento, a novel that would take the better part of a decade to write, would concern families whose last name had been in the community for generations, living in houses they know about which stories were passed down of how they were built, or of the dramas and tragedies that occurred in certain of their rooms, haunted, if not by ghosts, then by memory. I like Christiane Conlin's writing very much, and so this last summer I sought her out a second time to talk about her new novel, and the challenges but also pleasures of being a writer in a rural part of one of Canada's so-called have-not provinces, away from the city, away from the busy cosmopolitan centres. How many people, really, does a writer have to know? The memento is narrated by young Fancy Mosher, her family servants to the Parkers and their summer estate in decline. The house, Petal's End, was at its apogee, a grand manor during the Great War, but it's been in decline since tragedy struck in the form of a suicide not addressed. The memento is a novel of such unspoken truths, of relatives succumbing to the exertions of a past they'd rather not have to confront. But Fancy, as the twelfth child, gifted with second sight, sees... It's a novel of the Atlantic Gothic, tied to place in a way that Vancouver could not possibly have offered Conlin, a writer ensconced now in Nova Scotia, the home she knows all too well, its weather, its fecund summers, its dangerous rocks, the atrophied glories of its once grand homes. So it made good sense that, sitting down with Christiane again, we conferred in the shadow of one such faded manner that might have been Petal's End, its turret, high windows, collapsed porch, and ornate architraves, a dilapidated reminder of what had been. Here's my conversation with Christy, and some readings by her, too. 
So tell me, first of all, Christiane, where did you grow up? I grew up on the North Mountain, over on the Bay of Fundy and down in the Annapolis Valley in a place called Turner's Brook in a farming community called Wellsford. And the North Mountain, I should explain, is a ridge along the backside of the southwestern part of Nova Scotia that extends into the Bay of Fundy and gradually sinks into it. Yes, and it's part of the Appalachia. If you follow the course of the the ridge, it's just the low part, (laughs) which we refer to as the mountain. One of the things that's always compelled me about Nova Scotia is it seems to me to be a province defined by its smaller communities rather than its metropolis, Halifax. Yes, I think that that's sort of the legacy where there were small communities and that still defines it to this day. In the valley, there are a lot of people leaving, but people have a very strong attachment to these small communities and want to return to them. And we're sitting actually in the yard of an abandoned, extraordinarily handsome house. It looks as if it's not been lived in for a couple of decades. A marvelous sort of tower on one corner. And it's not unusual to have these vacated houses in communities all along the North and South Mountain, really, is it? Yeah, I view them as portals in time, because you come along and you can see there was something grand there once. And to me, these abandoned homes and communities where you can see the remnants of what was speak of stories to be discovered. This house was probably a fairly grand home. It's three stories. It looks like a Victorian of some sort, but it really is pretty dilapidated now. And there are these homes in many rural communities in Nova Scotia and definitely up on the mountain, and they do speak to a different time. So what does that do to a writer's psyche to grow up in a place in which there is this rather constant architectural specter of the past? I think it's where my interest came in as ghosts as metaphor, because you do feel like you're surrounded by a past that won't die and the lingering symbols of another time. And so you will have a grand mansion or abandoned community halls and churches, so you know that there was another world there. And for me, it just made me curious about what happened, what was there, who built that house. And of course, there's always the local legends. When you know, I grew up, there's abandoned places. There's one in particular. You go up the mountain, down a dirt road, then you you go in several kilometers on what would have been a long laneway to an abandoned area where a woman was murdered and chopped up, and part of her was put in the stove, and then her husband burned the property down. But you would never know that if you weren't from there, right? So I grew up with the legend of Murder Meadow, but it's actually a really horrific story of a woman who was murdered. But if you just wandered down in the autumn through the beautiful leaves and found it, you would never know. I've always looked for indicators of why I could not be a novelist myself. One of them is that I I falter before genealogies. And genealogy here in, in Nova Scotia is terrifically important. It's there in those legends. It's there in the sense of this more prosperous past so important here. Well, I take a lot of liberties with that. I think I'm inspired by Faulkner. I think I write in the tradition of the North Atlantic Gothic versus Southern Gothic in the U.S., where I'm interested in genealogy, and I often will work with family names from the area, but I create my own lineage and family tree to create a sense of timelessness and distortion. So, for instance, in the memento, the name Parker, I'm actually related through cousins to the Parker family, and I love that connection to the name, but I wanted to take a name and then distort 
the history behind it so it's familiar and yet it's not. And I think the best writing really gives you that distance so you can eventually see yourself in it because you're not so close that you're identifying so much that you lose your objectivity. And that's one of the reasons I like to play around. And I think maybe because I'm from here, I can take those liberties. And if I wasn't, then I might get my hand slapped by my mother. And you've set up a, a, a subtle but forceful class tension of a kind in that you have Colonel Parker having established his estate, marries Marigold, an emigre from Britain, has one child, Charlie, and it's not giving away too much, I think, to say that he hangs himself. No, yeah, no, yeah. the whole mystery is why. Right, and then another family mirroring this, in fact, your narrator, Young Fancy, is of the Mosher line, and they were originally servants to the Parker family. Yes. Living alongside and sort of looking across, and you, so you have these marvellous parallel lines in your two families that, of course, intersect. How much were these class differences accidental or intended? Oh, it was absolutely intentional. I'm very informed by the English novel, Jane Austen, the Bronte sisters, even Kasia Ishiguro's The Remains of the Day. I've always been really fascinated by the very clear British class divisions, but then in North America, certainly in Nova Scotia, where it's much more invisible, again, it's like a ghost. There are absolute class divisions. And so I I wanted that in the book. So we have the, the Mosier family and the Parkers, and they're linked by these family secrets. So I was very interested in what that reveals about people, the class you're born into, even the fingers of colonialism reaching through time and persisting. It was a nod to the Irish big house novel of the peasants, the Irish peasants in the little cottages and then the landed gentry in the grand manor home and coming across the water to the new world. And I wanted all of those whispers and echoes of that old world novel in this book. And it's subtle, but it's a force that perverts both. So we have uh, the working class, the servants downstairs, and then the upstairs, the the Grand Parkers, the aristocratic family, and who came from the old world, and power and privilege they have, and how that corrupts them, and the Mosier family who are victims of that, yet uh, there's a freedom in being the working poor, which ultimately allows them to rise above. And each family line experiences a kind of ruin, uh, and we read compelled because we want to get to the source of whatever these bad seeds. And I wonder how much that comes out of a Nova Scotian sensibility. This is curiously a province that celebrates or remembers disasters and tragedies of various kinds. The Halifax explosion, hurricanes blowing, women picking blueberries off the fields. There's something, I would say, as an outsider to a degree, in the air in which that sense of calamity is part of the provincial character. Yes, I think that's true for all the Atlantic provinces. But in Nova Scotia, with coal mining disasters, uh, shipwrecks, and all the stories that people told, I think it was a way of trying to reconcile. And when you tell a story, you keep the past alive. And we pass these stories down in families and generations, and it creates a relationship with place and the ruins. So it, it does define it, because when you are from here and you grow up, you know the stories. And, and so you grow up knowing there is a ruin, but there's still life in it yet. And I think that does define Nova Scotia, that we hold on to those stories. And in my work, I'm certainly fascinated by how the past 
is alive in present day. And I, when I, I left Nova Scotia and I came back, I thought, oh, it's boring, blah, right, rural Nova Scotia, it's it lobsters, and I hated all of that, and I left. And then I missed it, and I pined for it, and I came home because I realized this was the most exotic place in the world to me. It was like coming back in time many ways, and I love that, how you can go visit someone and their house still looks like it's 1942, but then you get back out in your car and you stick up the pictures on Instagram. Well, I, one of the things that happens to me when I, I, I come here and I spend a good part of the year here is I end up asking myself, it's a kind of decision really, I ask myself, how many people do you need to know? Because it is a place so replete with stories. Mm-hmm. It's there in all these relationships in the secrets and murder mm-hmm. meadow in the tragedies at the heart of the memento. Well, everybody knows somebody who has a special sense, somebody who can feel the spirits. And I should point out, fancy at the heart of the memento, as the twelfth-born child has a sixth sense. Yes, she does, and it's born in her family, and every twelfth child inherits this ability to see the dead. So the family story goes. We're surrounded by stories that live, and artists, I think, then... I don't want to sound flaky and say channel into them. But, but the, the stories speak to you, like this old house we're sitting by. Petal's End was home to me, as frightful as some folks thought the vast house was, way off on the mountain in the forest by the bay. Things smelled familiar. I thought of how I missed the tea house, Grampy's fresh baked bread, the sharp, thick odor of his oil paints and turpentine, the scent of the wood stove in the winter. I felt sick to my stomach with longing. I pushed Grampy and our lives together out of my mind and sat in the back of the vintage Rolls Royce, feeling the car moving through the imposing wrought iron gates and by the huge chestnut trees in front of the stone walls like guards driving over each and every bump of the long lane. Them raging words of Ma's scrambled in my ears, the foul valley air lodged in my nostrils. Finally, we plunged into the deep piney woods Petal's End Road ran through. Off in the forest, there were broken pieces of marble, statues that long ago had fallen over and broken. The pieces would glow white at dusk, as though they might pick themselves up and put themselves back together when the moon came out. They built Petals End back behind the forest and away from the water to keep it sheltered from the winter winds, but that didn't stop the fog from creeping out from the forest. It kept the world away, and that was how the Parkers liked it, especially after Charlie killed himself. Charles Parker the Sixth. The newspaper called him the Scion when he died. We've just come over the ridge of the North Mountain from Annapolis Royal into Parker's Cove. You have Parkers in your novel. I don't know if they're related. Do you know? Parker is an old Nova Scotia name, so I figure that all the Parkers are somehow, you know, fifth cousins, eight times removed, or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> there are a few names on the Digby Neck that I know well, Gidney and Tid, and it's quite remarkable because then you go around to, say, Shelburne, and it's a completely different set of names, and people remain quite local. In fact, I remember running into a fisher at the end of the dock, uh, Morehouse, which is a common name at the village I know. 
and asking if he was related. And he said, oh, no, I'm not from around here. And he was from Whale Cove, which is six kilometers <laughs> yeah. the bay. Is there a big difference, as you might find in Newfoundland, between the villages along the shore, the various coves, and habitations just a bit inland? Oh, there's a huge difference. Where I'm from, which is just east of here, and it's the same way for all the valley towns. There was usually a valley town that was connected to a fishing village. And so in Berwick, where I was born, it was connected and still is to Harborville. And so in the days of sail, all the ships came in. And then when the trains came, commerce really shifted back down to the valley. But when my grandmother would go from Berwick over for Dominion Days in Harborville and had hotels, and then when the fishing industry declined, the villages shrunk. And then in the valley, when the trains came, the apple industry boomed. And enter me as a writer being really interested in what lurked behind the fishing industry in decline. So there was a connection, but if you're from the mountain, you're from the mountain. And when I grew up, if you had a cottage over on the bay, it meant you were poor, right? People had camps or cottages on lakes, and now it's more trendy. And then in the 70s, there was a whole counterculture and people came up. I'm trying to remember if in Ernest Buckler's The Mountain of the Valley there is much of a presence of the actual Bay of Fundy? No, it's it's more of a pastoral setting. And it's it's at a time where I think the Bay, and certainly in Annapolis Royal with the ships that would have come in, and there was a ferry that left, and that, I mean, that was a major centre. It's more focused on the valley and the trains coming in. And for me, what changed the valley is when the 101, the highway, came in. And in the memento, an island figures. There's a revelatory and indeed tragic outing to the island late in the novel. But other than that, it's a novel very much ensconced up the end of this lane where Evermore and Petal's End are. And it's also a novel of rich, fecund summer. Well, the key season, yes, really is a season of this endless, timeless summer. And and I love that, that where we say it feels like summer will never end. And it really, really does. But also summer in Canada is always a, a season in a hurry with not much time to procreate, basically. Mm-hmm. You have three sex scenes in the novel. Mm-hmm. I'd say they're very well written. You'll have to quiz me on what I <laughs> think that means. But they're all violations. Did you think perhaps I should have had one scene in which sex wasn't such an act of consequence, or is it always that? Sex is a really primal force, and I think sex is often about who has power over who, and in the memento that very much plays into whether you're empowered or disempowered, and it's a very primal force that cuts through civility. And so if you're an aristocratic parker in the grand home of Petal's End, it doesn't matter all the trappings. When you strip it away, you're still an animal. And it's easy to forget that, and it can be very beguiling. And so sex in the book is very much about domination. But then the book is a very sensory book, right, where I really worked with the sensory experience of of life and the world. And I'm a character-based writer, so that's what the characters showed me, this really earthy lusty, animalistic experience of being a human and how that can be distorted based on some of my own personal experiences. I mean, my work isn't strictly autobiographical, but I think when you've had experiences with sexual assault, 
experiences I had as a young woman growing up in Nova Scotia, then there's a, almost a, a, a sanctity about how you approach exploring that in fiction. Young women are often very powerless and exploited and often don't even realize there's an exploitation there and then participate really in exploiting other women. Uh, you know, I guess that would be called internalized oppression. It's one of the reasons it took me a long time to write the book because I had to approach it in, in layers. The bus was late that day and it was terrible hot even in the shade. Art and I had gone to get a drink of water from the lunchroom in the administration building. When we got there, the screen door and the inside door were both locked. As we stood there, thirsty in the wicked heat, there was a groan inside. We looked through the window and saw Margaret kneeling in her navy blue work skirt. The student minister who ran the program was standing with his eyes closed tight and his fleshy pink man part going in and out of Margaret's mouth. The white blouse she wore was unbuttoned. Her big boobs were jiggling up and down. Margaret's eyes were shut and her bangs were hanging in her face. Art and I had never seen nothing like that before. The minister had his hands in her mousy hair. Even through the window, we could hear him saying her name. Maggie, Maggie, oh Maggie. We'd never heard anyone call her Maggie. She got mad if he gave her a nickname, but she apparently changed her rules for romance. Margaret suddenly glanced up towards us when Art took a step back. We didn't know if she'd seen us, with the hair in her eyes and the minister going at her like he was trying to pump the life out of her. And just then, it was like he was having an attack, because he started shaking and thrusting and gasping, all red in the face. And we went running off, waiting down in the shade, praying we'd hear that consumptive bus pull up. It didn't. Margaret came strolling down through the hemlocks with the minister. He was holding a Bible, and they looked all earnest as they discussed the good Lord, except they was flushed and sweaty. He nodded at Margaret, all formal, and off he went. We're now in Annapolis Royal Market, and I was just striding along with coffees for you and your fella Andy and Susie from one of the pottery stalls waved at me and said, Andy's gone that way and Christiane says she has to use the bathroom. So you're a known quantity. What's it like being an artist in Nova Scotia in the 21st century? Well, I'm an artist in rural Nova Scotia, which I think is an important distinction because in Nova Scotia, Halifax really is the thriving urban metropolis. And I live and have lived for a long time out of Halifax where things like weather impact you. You can't walk to a cafe when there's a huge snowstorm and the snow plows when you live on a dirt road come last. So it can be very isolating physically and emotionally because it's a major commitment to drive into the city, especially in the winter. But it's interesting, I mean, Halifax is always at a distance. It's upstage. It's far off. It lurks like the Grand Manor home lurking over the poor people or, you know, the home up on the hill looming over the village. And Halifax, yeah, the city, I mean, we call it that. It doesn't even get its own name and it's off in the distance. And I find living in rural Nova Scotia creatively 
that that's where my material is. I mean, I remember when I was in Vancouver doing my MFA and I became really interested in Flannery O'Connor then and I found it fascinating that she went back to rural Georgia to Milledgeville and lived in Andalusia, the, the family home. And I know she had lupus, so she was ill and she needed help. But she went back to the exact place she was from and wrote. And she always said, if you serve, any writer survives her childhood, has more than enough material for the rest of the writing life. And that really, I think, defined it for me so I could come home and what I needed to write was here and the people and I the love places. That, you took that particular quote from Flannery O'Connor who in hospital later in life was suspended in a gurney and the doctor allowed her her bottle of whiskey every day. She traveled in a car with a rope just in case yes. uh, in a very morbid sense. Yeah and I think you find people like that or I do in rural areas. How much is there in you an idea that we repeat patterns in the past? Well, I think it encircles and ensnares us and I think as a society or on an individual level there's always the potential that somebody will break the pattern and there is in lies the dramatic tension will they or won't they or will they be able to rise up and transcend it and I was shaped by reading The Mountain in the Valley by Ernest Buckler where David, David, also the reading, tragic hero of the yeah, the tra- of the, yeah, the and Valley. in the end, he's he's very much caught in time and and can't leave. Does it require that? I'm thinking, for instance, of the work of Lynn Cody. The way to break the habit would be through exit. In my writing, it's the opposite, and it's interesting because we we often Lynn and I have talked about that. I mean, she actually doesn't live here anymore, and I do. But for me, it's about how do you transcend it in situ? How do you do that by not leaving? And when you mentioned earlier being a writer in the 21st century in rural Nova Scotia, I sometimes feel like I'm a blacksmith. So I'm surrounded by the heat of the forge and the loud noises and the world of my creative environment, and I feel like I'm a craftsperson. You know, or I'm afflicted. I feel like I have an affliction and I have to do this. I remember a fellow in Winnipeg saying to me, discussing a similar question, yeah, I said, my friends from Toronto come and they're all philosophers of money. (laughs) What he meant was that it was a predominant concern just about how to get by. I mean, I feel creatively compelled to be here. And at this point, many of my stories have their roots here. I remember sitting and staring at the North Mountain when I was in high school thinking if I didn't leave I was going to end up on the side of the mountain dead like David in the mountain in the valley that I I had to leave right and um, I think that that is a defining part of life for a Nova Scotian which is leaving and the journey home and for an artist like me you can come home but in a way you can't because you've seen the outside world and it I don't know, maybe part of my writing is I'm still tr- I'm trying to get back to what maybe I can never touch again. If you had a manifesto for a younger artist beginning, what would its first three rules be? And treat it like a Rorschach test. Don't take too long on it. Read, write, and don't waste time. We went up the only path toward the top. The island was surrounded by cliffs on all sides, except where we climbed. The path had once been a farm road, big enough for horses to haul a wagon up and down. But the island was taking it back now, the boreal forest growing in since it had been abandoned 30 years before. Now it was just a wild, 
and wide, overgrown trail, tall enough for children to scamper along, but low enough for a grown man to have to duck. Damp ferns brushed our ankles. We moved farther into the dark green light. Art's leg was bleeding where the branches had scraped at him. Jenny hummed to herself. Pommeline, beside me, stared meditatively at the trees, and up we went to the tippity top, the path breaking into what had been a hayfield. It had gone wild, and the grasses were up to our chests. We pushed ahead through a cluster of trembling aspens. We could see it then, off to the west, the tall metal skeleton of the automated lighthouse. The outbuildings had fallen down, nothing left but the stone foundations. Jenny crawled up the crumbling stone wall and into what had been a cellar, now just a jumble of rusted metal and blackened wood. If you pawed around, you could find a piece of glass, warped and deformed from how white-hot the fire had been. There was choirs of birds singing on the branches and late summer raspberries growing up through the wreckage. Jenny picked a handful. I held up my hand to her like Loretta. Don't eat them, Jenny! Grounds covered in mercury from the lens in the lighthouse. Grampy told us that. Pommeline told her to put them down, but Jenny ignored her and stuck out her tongue. Don't be a fool, Pommeline said. I had never heard her say nothing mean like that before. She walked over and reached down and held out her hand. Jenny gave them berries to Pommeline, dropping them in her white palm. Then Pommeline ate them berries one by one. We shuffled uneasily. What are you doing, Pommeline? Art asked. She just laughed. That's it for this edition of 128 Sterling. Today, you heard my conversation with Christy Ann Conlin, whose novel, The Memento, is published by Doubleday Canada. 128 Sterling is produced for the House of Anansi with help from the Canada Council for the Arts and is presented by me, Noah Richler. Charles Spearin does the musical bits. Goodbye, and thanks for listening.